Going into week 22, making right decisions, the title of tonight's message, we are finally moving from the book of 2 Samuel uh, into, if you have your Bible tonight, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, it's after uh, 2 Samuel. If you don't know where 2 Samuel is, that tells me you have not been following along the past 45 weeks. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's kind of, you know, somewhere in the Old Testament, so just look, up, look it up somewhere. Um, <laughs> We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 1 tonight. David is at the end of his life. We've seen many triumphs, many falls. Um, we've seen the story of a man who was a seeker um, after God. He was commonly referred to as a man after God's own heart. And so we come to a place where David is starting to get very, very weak. Um, scholars believe that David was about 70 years old at this point. Um, 70 back then usually you'd still be kicking pretty good. Um, it wasn't exactly an old age back then. People lived a little bit longer in the time of David. So for him to be getting to a place on his deathbed at 70, it shows you that David has led a pretty significant life where it has become taxing. We've seen him fight lions and tigers and, and be a shepherd of sheep. We've seen him fight giants and 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 take over a kingdom, even though he never thought he would he would be a king. We've seen him um, rise in the abilities of musicianship and writing songs, and we've seen him have rebellion from his family. We've seen him mess up again and again and again and again, and yet God still glorifies him and allows him to be um, a king that would actually establish the lineage that would bring about King Jesus. Amen. Pretty significant. And that gives me some peace because God's like, listen, seek me. You're going to get some things wrong, but if you're seeking me, you're going to know they're wrong in the moment and you're going to turn from them and you're going to walk more toward me. And I, I think that God isn't necessarily obsessed with you being perfect. He wants you obsessed with being obsessed with walking as righteous in his sight. Amen. That's what he wants. He wants us as seekers. And that's exactly what David is. But he's had a long life. He's very, he's very weak. And if you look at 1 Kings, starting in the first four verses in chapter 1, it says this. Throw up there, Emmett. King David was now very old. And now, and no matter how many blankets covered him, he could not keep warm. So his advisors told him, let us find a young virgin to wait on you and look after you. I, I, I pray that when I get old. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Woo! Mmm. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us find a young virgin to wait on you and look after you, my Lord. She will lie in your arms and keep you warm. Why can't doctors prescribe that kind of medicine? <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Verse 3. So they searched throughout the land of Israel for a beautiful girl, and they found Ab Abishag from Shunem and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful, and she looked after the king and took care of him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. The advisors mentioned here were not exactly the prophetic counsel of David. In fact, if you study it, it's actually the medical counsel. And the fact is, back in these times, their, medis their medicine practices were a little different than today. Today, if you've got a problem, they can prescribe something to help you take care of the problem. Some Christians don't believe in medicine, and I would say open up the blind eyes because you. sometimes we say God heal us, and sometimes it's an automatic healing. Sometimes it's a healing through your obedience to a process that he gave someone the wisdom through called a doctor. 
in case any of you wondered about that. And if you think I'm wrong, you're wrong. So, <laughs> medical treatments. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on something tonight. Me, I, I mean, Holy Spirit. Medical. <sighs> I'm going to record tomorrow's message. <laughs> medical treatments back then were much different. And one such treatment was in the beginning. That David was very cold, so they put warm blankets on him. That wasn't working. Um, he is very weak. He's very cold. He's, he's in his deathbed. So one medical treatment was we're going to get a young woman full of life to lay with David, not in a sexual manner, but simply lie next to him so that her youth would maybe um, vigorate something in David. And it's kind of funny because they knew their king. And they could have put anything with David, but they knew David's weakness. Over and over, he's got woman after woman after woman. He's got like 10 wives or, or more by this point. And the medical team is like, how can we get, because they're depending on David. They love their king. They don't want their king to die. They're almost in panic mode. And the first thing they think is, how can we get him to wake up? And they're like, get a virgin. And the reason they get a virgin is because in order to lay with King David, he had to marry the girl. And the only one worthy of being married as a concubine of David would be a young, beautiful virgin. So they find her. And what's interesting about this is we know that God is not a God about polygamy, marrying many, many people. Would you agree? Yeah. That's not how God is. And sometimes we live a life where we get so obsessed with our custom and culture that we miss what God wants. We see throughout David's life, one of his biggest things that was almost bringing him down was women. And in this time, custom and culture, someone say custom and culture. Custom and culture said it's totally cool for this man to be married to many women. And they were so blinded by custom and culture that they would not hear God say, keep it to one. And I think that is one of the biggest problems of today. Every church, every pastoral leader usually has the same sort of language, and it's simply this. you got to be culturally relevant. And I think we've got something backwards. Because God came to establish a heavenly culture on earth. And for some reason, we think the way to win people is to look like the people that are lost to convince them to come into this house. It's almost like we're saying, hey, God, I know you're going to destroy the earth, but in the meantime, we're going to look like the thing that you want to destroy. Custom and culture. And this is where David's at. Custom and culture is accepting of have all these wives, so they get this young, beautiful virgin. And you can tell that David is very weak because it says in verse 4 he had no sexual relations with her. Any other time in his life, had this happened, they would have been like, leave the court. <laughs> but he, there was nothing about him that responded, which tells you he is in a weakened state. He is in the dawn, if you will, of his life. He's on his deathbed, just, you know, hanging on. Next week, he's going to pass away in the next chapter. Spoiler alert, David dies. 
He doesn't get taken up into heaven. You know, he's, he, he dies. He is so weak that nothing is letting him respond. And they're having to come to grips with a question, who's going to replace him? Because to this point, his family history is not exactly great. He's got rebellion, adultery, murder, brothers that don't like him, kids that rebel against him, and they're going to have to make some decisions. And I think so many times in life, we get to these places where we know we've got to make some decisions, but we don't know how to make the decisions, so either we make them too fast or we take too much time because we don't know what to do in the time. Or we'll ask people opinions and you end up asking so many opinions that it just confuses you even more. And then Christians start to answer questions that non-Christians are asking and they don't know how to answer them. We've got people in this world asking things like, hey, what do you believe about homosexuality? What do you believe about abortion? What do you believe in this? What do you believe in that? Is it okay to, do, uh, to, to smoke weed? Is it okay to do this? What, what, what is the answers? And we tend to answer them based off of, well, years ago it was bad, but now it's different. There is no plumb line of, of discipline in our lives. And we don't know how to answer these questions, and no one is trying. And eventually, you're going to have to make some decisions. Am I going to go into what this book tells me? Am I going to go into what God tells me to do? Or am I going to change everything I believe to fit a custom or our culture? Now, some things about custom and culture are not necessarily bad. Not all customs are bad. It's a custom of the church to take communion. There is nothing wrong with communion. We take communion. I'm praying about whether we should do it more or not. We do it right now once a month. The problem that comes into communion is when you think the act of it is what's significant. It's not the act of it that is significant. It is about the posture of your heart when you take it that is significant. Coming to sing songs in church it's not significant. It's are you actually worshiping God or are you trying to make yourself feel better about the fact that your life sucks? Can we, can we just talk real? Maybe that shouldn't be using that word. Sorry if that offended you. I will try to be better in the rest. I know that offends some. But sometimes life stinks. And a lot of times we come to church to get away. But the fact of the matter is that this is designed for you to come get equipped to change what you're trying to get away from. <laughs> so some decisions are about to be made, and we're going to see the decision-making process. Y'all interested in this? Okay. So look at verse 5. About that time, David's son, Adonijah, that's what we're going with, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting. I will make myself king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Adonijah is actually the fourth son of David. You've got the first two sons, Amnon and Absalom, and if you've been in the series, you'll find out both of them dead. 
Then you got a third son, son named Chuliab who's never mentioned in this conversation. So we have to assume is either he died or he's just unfit to rule. He's never mentioned. We don't really have much context about it. But um, Adonijah, he is the fourth son. So he assumes because he is the next son to get the throne that he would be king. Why? Because in that time, it was the custom and the culture for the son of the king to take the throne. So because he is going with custom and culture, he says, I'll make myself king. Why does he do it? Dad's too old to make a decision. He doesn't even know what's going on around him. The dude has got a beautiful young virgin in bed, and he's just lying there like ain't nothing going on. So he's like, I'll make myself king. So in Haggai 1, 3 through 6, I want to paint a picture of what's lacking and what's going on in making decisions with custom and culture. The prophet Haggai says this, the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lie in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You plant a much but harvest little. You eat but you're not satisfied. You drink but you're still thirsty. You put on clothes but you cannot keep warm. Sounds a lot like who? David. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. Why are you living in luxurious houses and my house lies in ruins? Everything about the way we manage our lives has become a result of custom and culture. We even take biblical principles and throw it away because of custom and culture. Whether you talk about a tithe or an offering or you talk about serving the church, you talk about creating family, we've all made our own theology of what we believe it is to be. And the more and more I study this word, I've come to realize this. I'm not going to accept all theologies. I'm going to accept the one belief system that he laid out quite clearly because he really is that good. But what we do is we don't like certain things in belief systems called denominations and denominations that call themselves non-denominational. Let's get real. Most non-denominational churches, you pretty much know what to expect when you walk into a non-denominational church. You know what to expect when you walk into a Pentecostal church. You know what to expect when you walk into a Baptist church. You know what to expect when you walk into a Catholic church. You know what to expect when you walk into Target. It all looks a certain way. It all feels a certain way. And what's going on in our lives is we start to have every all these beliefs based off of what works for us, realizing that the decision you're making has nothing to do with your God it has everything to do with what you feel good about your custom and your culture. This is what I want for my life. This is what I think is right. Therefore, no matter what the word says, this is my truth. And that is called darkness, and that is where the enemy operates. What is darkness? Darkness is ignorance. Darkness is the absence of 
knowledge. The only place the enemy has permission to operate in is where light has not shown. Because if light hasn't shown in it, then you have nothing to compare it to to be right or wrong. That is why we can't. We, the people who have seen the light of God can't keep blaming the devil because you have seen the light of truth and therefore it's not the devil's fault. It's your fault for coming into an agreement with the suggestion of the enemy. But then there are those out there who have never seen the light, the knowledge, the truth of God and they don't know they're wrong and all Christians want to do is say you're going to hell and they're like we don't even believe in that. Why does that scare us, you stupid people? Let's get real. That is exactly where we're at in custom and culture. Like, go downtown and tell someone they're going to hell if they don't stop and see what they do. What? Because we've created this thing where there's so many holes because we're not making right decisions. And we learned last week that David made a wrong decision and it cost him something. He had to build an altar to God. Which is a good thing. But building an altar out of your life of sacrifice costs you stuff. It costs you what you like. What you like. It'll cost you friends. It will cost you family. That is why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to leave your mother, leave your father, leave your friends. Leave. You've got to be willing to, to leave your, your children, your wife. Your, you have got to be willing to lose their acceptance of you if you're going after me. Because if you're going after me, I'm going to demand a high cost of your life. What is the cost? I want it all. I want it all. I want your custom. I want your culture. I want what makes you comfortable. I want what makes you uncomfortable. And I'm going to totally transform you, but you've got to walk with me. And if you're going to walk with me, you've got to leave everything else. And there's too many of us trying to win the world with custom and culture, and we're living in luxurious houses while his house lies in ruins. And let me define this. This is not a message trying to convince you to give to Relentless Church. I am not talking about, because this is what preachers do. When they see that and they say, well, you living in your mansions and we got this dilapidated building because y'all don't give to the church. He ain't talking about a physical house. He's talking about a spiritual house. And we, <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to manipulate your pocket tonight. What I'm talking about is we spend so much time building our lives and exalting ourselves that we give no time to building the house of God. There's no discipleship. There's no correction. There's no boldness. There is no this is how it is and this is how it isn't. There's no, hey, um, pastor or person, what's this question? And we say just have faith because we don't want to dive into the true meaning of it because we don't want to offend people. We, just, we, we are depending on custom and culture to make us relevant to the situation. And God's like, I don't want you relevant. I want you to change what's relevant to them. I have come to establish a kingdom culture of heaven on earth. And where I'm from, heaven don't look like this. Y'all, y'all. <laughs> I wish we had video right now. <laughs> it, this is not what it looks like. Heaven does not look like people being obsessed with like Black Friday deals but they can't show up here on time because you've had a bad day. God's culture is not, you, you spend so much time trying to build wealth 
that you have no time to invest in your family. And when I'm talking about invest, I'm talking about raising up your kids right. When they ask why, give them a flipping why. They're just seeking knowledge. Spiritual sons and daughters are asking questions. How do I navigate through this? What does this mean? What is right? What is wrong? And we say, just pray about it. And you're not even teaching them how to pray about it. I don't know what's gotten into me tonight, but this, we're not making right decisions. We're, we're, depending, we're depending on church culture. We had this false doctrine in the New Testament evangelical movement that like, hey, we're going to feel better about ourselves. We're, we're going we're to give money to missions and we're going to make ourselves feel better that we're giving money to missions and there's, your neighbors are dying. But thank God we gave $1 million to missions. Where, where's your mission field? God, I wish you would put me in ministry. You're in ministry. Go home. Trust me, there's a ministry there. Go to work. You hate your work? Proof of ministry needed. The culture of your work does not make you happy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy. Why isn't your work experience and joy? Because it's not flowing out of you, sweetheart. <laughs> this is him, y'all. Custom and culture. We're all about it. He says, you know what? If you would include me, you'll have no lack. Look at what Haggai says, says. Your wages disappear as though, you're putting, as though you're putting them in pockets filled with holes. And God's like, hey, read my scripture because I'm going to teach you how to multiply what you put in your pockets. Oh, you're still hungry and thirsty? I will give you something that will never cause you to hunger and thirst again. But we're hungry for relationship. We're hungry for warmth, like David is. And we try to get it by all this stuff. Stuff we put in our mouths, stuff we put to our eyes, stuff we put in our ears. We're trying to get all of this warmth, and God's like, let me tell you why you're still cold. Because I designed you in such a way where there's only one thing that can keep you satisfied, and it's me. That is why the moment that Adam and Eve took the fruit, they were embarrassed about being naked because before they had no concept that nakedness was even a bad thing. And it wasn't a bad thing. Evil eyes corrupted a good thing. They weren't supposed to look at a naked body and think sinful, immoral thoughts. But these days, we can't get past it. He says, I, I, I made a way for you to operate. It's walking with me in the cool of the day. Do you walk with me? Or are you walking with your custom and culture? He says, if you would include me, I'll give you everything you want. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, not all but, in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. You want to make the right decisions? It's really simple. Seek him. We overcomplicate scripture. You want to learn the path for your life? Come to this weekend's, you know, seminar training on, on how to, you know, make your life better. It only costs you $99 to come to church and get in. Oh, really? 
God's like, hey, like here, here's a free lesson. Seek me and you will find. Like, like maybe, maybe we have gotten too obsessed with making this overcomplicated because we can't accept how simple it truly is. He's like, just seek me. You want to make the right decision? Seek me. Seek me to a degree where when the decision time comes, you won't have to do extra seeking because you're already in a lifestyle of a seeker. That's what we have to build at Relentless. Not great programs and not great, oh, this group is better than this and, and this is great and get involved in this ministry and get involved. No, no, no. Like maybe we should get away from getting involved in this ministry and get more into less developed less develop seekers where ministry just happens. And when people say, what's the model? We say, well, it's really simple. It's one word, seek. There's all these models to produce things in the church today. Based off of custom and culture. I mean, th think about custom and culture. Let's not do hymns because they're old. If you research where hymns came from, let me tell you, they didn't come straight from the Bible. They were bar tunes. Just in case those who worship hymns. And the way they started playing, they said, we're going to take an organ that was demonic to put in a sanctuary and we're going to play the bar tunes. And now we have praise and worship that we consider unholy because it's not a hymnal. But in modern culture, it's let's be relevant. It's, the sound's got to change. And yet there are still places in the deepest parts of the world who are experiencing more God than we singing a song from 80 years ago because it's not about how the song sounds. It's not about being culturally relevant with music. You know what it's about? I'm singing this to God. If the angels sing glory, glory over and over, and that's like get a picture of angels. It, the scripture tells us the angels sing glory, glory like over and over because they get in, like they see God. They're like glory, glory, glory. And this is us as like as Christian worshipers. Can we please get some new lyrics because this is not ministering to my soul? Because we're not seeking him. We're trying to be too culturally relevant. Y'all know I'm telling the truth. <sighs> so God's going to show us the problem is oftentimes we don't like what we see. Because it doesn't make sense. And God prepares us. He's like, hey, um, my ways are not yours. My thoughts are not yours. So when I tell you to do something, go ahead and count on the fact that it's not going to make sense. That's why I'm giving you the key of faith. It doesn't make sense to give part of your income away to gain more. It's like, don't worry about it. I designed it that way. It doesn't make sense that when you're in need, the answer is to serve a need. But he's like, it's okay. I designed it that way. Look at, look at 1 Kings 1, 5 again. I want to read this in the New King James. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, exalted himself, saying, I'll be king, and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. 
Why was he convinced he would be the next king? Not just custom and culture, but he exalted himself. And a basic principle that we get wrong is we exalt, we exalt ourselves above God, and for that reason we never include him in making right decisions. Because it's all about our logic and reasoning that develop from custom and culture. Kids today have a different logic and reasoning to adults of yesterday, of adults of today. Why? Because they develop a logic and reasoning based off of culture and custom. It has not been developed out of truly seeking something that is everlasting. Think about the word everlasting. This remains the same through the trends of your custom and culture. So don't be relevant to your culture. Be relevant to the everlasting covenant. Mm. Psalm 75, 6 through 7. For no one on earth from east or west or even from the wilderness should raise a defiant fist. It is God alone who judges and he decides who will rise and who will fall. And I believe one of the reasons we don't see who God decides to rise and fall is because we're trying to, remember, we do have an authority to operate on this earth. He says, I've got a way. The way you get there is to walk in step with me. God is saying, I decide who's going to rise. And the reason your world's collapsing because you haven't gotten in line with my decision. I decide who rises. But we push our own agendas. We push our own people, which we're about to see in the story of David. And we're wondering why everything is working completely backwards. I decide who rises. Like, think about the idea of church. The Bible says that the church is here to equip the saints. But the only people that you see rising is preachers. And usually a preacher ain't replaced until he falls into sin or he dies. What if the true meaning of church is to be such good stewards of raising up people that the preacher can't preach anymore because so many gifts are rising up out of the house? But we don't like to embrace that because we love to depend on people. We love to depend on a person, a a, 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 um, a, a, a famous type social public figure. When the most famous one of all was the one most hated by the public. Hmm. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. He decides who rises and falls. How does he decide who rises? Those who humble themselves before him. Why did David rise even though he failed and failed and failed? He always humbled himself before him. Humility is not just, it is not just, this is not just an idea that God is greater and I'm less. Humility is simply this. God, this is what I want. This is what I think. This is my desire. What do you want? This is what I think. This is what my opinions are. This is what my custom says. This is what my culture says. This is how I believe to be true. But God, if you don't want any of it, just take it all. I want what you want. I'll do what you want to do. 
Now I want to point out something here that's very interesting in verse 5 again. It says, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots, horsemen, and 50 men to run before him. That's a pretty good marketing campaign back then. He's like, look at me. I've got the chariots of a king. I've got the horses of a king. I've got people serving me. Look at what I've got. But earlier in the story of David, we see something very similar because Adonijah says, I'm going to get chariots, horsemen, and how many people? Fifty. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 15.1 to King David's first son. Absalom bought a chariot, horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. Adonijah was only copying the custom and culture of his rebellious older brother. But that's what we do in the church. We see rebellious things and we try to adopt them into the house of God. And God's like, there's a reason why that's not working. And you can put my name on it, but I don't want to be associated with that. There is a way. There is a truth. There is a life, and his name is Jesus. And he says, if you will come through me, I am the door. I will show you the ways of my Father. But if you will not come through me, you'll only hear the parables, and you won't get any meaning out of them. And that is why we have the bulk of Christians being motivated by motivational speaking called a sermon. And when you ask them to cast out a devil, they don't even know they believe they're here. Like, why is the church still debating on some of these things? Verse 6. Now, his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? David wasn't exactly the best father role model for us to go after. He's a man, he's a great king, but he's got some problems. Adonijah had been born next after Absalom, and he was very handsome. David was never good at disciplining his kids. And I believe partly is because he never had a great example of his own father. Remember when David, when, when the prophet came to get David, his father wouldn't even present him? He didn't exactly have a loving father. In fact, in the Psalms, David refers to his mother as a maidservant of the Lord, a maidservant of the Lord, and doesn't mention his father. Only one referred to as the son of. Jesse. So the reason he's probably not great at being a dad is because he never had a great example of being a dad. But you know what? It doesn't excuse David not correcting because you know why? He may not have had a great example of an earthly father, but she, he sure as heck had an example of his heavenly father. And he had a relationship with him, and he was corrected, he was disciplined, and it brought him to glory after glory despite his fall. And if he got that from his spiritual father, from his heavenly father, he should have been able to know how to treat his earthly son. And I'm going to say this, there are so many times we excuse bad behavior with how we were raised or what our circumstances are but right decisions flow from a relationship with your father not a relationship with your past 
Well, you don't know what I grew up in. You don't know what happened to me. I don't need to know. If you want to tell me, share. We'll minister to it. We'll talk about it. But when it comes down to it, you are to surrender your life under one thing. Not your circumstances. Not your household. Your father who redeemed you and said you are now made pure and whole and righteousness in my sight. Verse 7. That's all right. Adonijah took Joab, son of Zariah, and Abiathar, the priest, into his confidence, and they agreed to help him become king. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, son of Jehida, Nathan, the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and David's personal bodyguard refused to support Adonijah. You got two people in this verse, Joab and Abiathar. Joab is David's chief general, and Abiathar is the one that he appointed as the high priest of Israel, and neither of them consulted God about who was going to replace David. Remember, they've got to make a decision because they're realizing David is old. He ain't responding to nothing. He's dying. we got to make a decision. The high priest himself did not say God. He said, custom and culture? Yeah, that makes sense. Adonijah. And he betrayed his loyalty to his king and said, I'm going after Adonijah. I'm betraying, even though I've seen God take us from, you know, 400 men in a cave of Adullam to ministering and having the entire kingdom of the United 12 tribes of Israel, even though we've seen God do that, custom and culture. And we've seen God do some amazing things, but we always go to custom and culture. Well, we don't want to offend people. Well, not offending people has not changed the world. Maybe we got to start being bold and allow it to offend. Let me remind you what the master teacher did. Hey, drink my blood, eat my flesh. Everyone ran. But for some reason, to be culturally relevant, this is what the church has become. God loves you and he doesn't look at you as you've done anything wrong. And if you would simply say a salvation prayer that we came up with in our staff meeting last week, the rest of your life will be okay. So come up to the front and fill out your card so we can put you in our membership and we can follow up with you and we can give you some coffee and we can buy your lunch. And we're going to make sure that you have a pleasant experience at this church. And God's like, sacrifice everything, die to your family, and run after me. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We're not creating true followers and seekers because we've made it too easy. When God himself has made it really hard on purpose. He's like, you've got to sacrifice some stuff. And he says, I know how hard it is, so every time you're weak, let me be your strength. He knows how hard it is. He knows how far away we are from him. So he's like, I'm going to lay out a step-by-step process of how to get to, to me and with me and walk with me, even though it's really hard. But I expect nothing less. And there could have been reasons why Joab and Abiathar went away from David so quick. I mean, think about Joab. He was probably bitter that David put Amasa over him at one point. Abiathar was probably jealous that Zadok was now the priest, that David had placed him there at one time when there was a rebellion. They were probably jealous. They were probably bitter. 
But you cannot let bitterness and jealousy be the thing that helps you make a decision. And the number one cause when people leave the church is I'm offended. That's your decision maker? You know how many times the 12 disciples, the apostles, got offended? Like, think about Jesus. He's chilling with Simon Peter. Simon's talking, and all of a sudden, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. But in church, if I call out evil, I can't believe you just did that. You're supposed to be my pastor. How dare you tell me I've done wrong? They're probably bitter, but look at Hebrews 12, 15. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Well, how do we fail to receive the grace of God? Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you and corrupting many. When you make decisions off of being bitter, it corrupts more areas of your life than you're even aware of. And what happened in this moment, Joab and Abiathar pledged their allegiance to a king that God did not want, all because their jealousy and bitterness corrupted their thinking. They didn't even consult the God they had been following for years and years and years. They didn't even consult David, the dude who brought them into the greatest day of Israel. They just said, well, this is custom and culture. It must be right. Look at verse 9. By the way, there's like 50 verses, so get comfortable. Is this okay? Don't worry. It's going to go a lot quicker than you think. Adonijah went to the stone of Zoheleth near the spring of Enrogel where he sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves. He invited all his brothers, the other sons of King David, and all the royal officials of Judah. He was exalting himself. He was claiming himself as king. He, he got together. He had a banquet. Fed people, if you ever want people to support you, just feed them. Which is how Jesus did it. You can look at that in your own time. He just built relationships around the dinner table. He even solidified who he was at the dinner table, and now we call it communion. But he was doing the right stuff. He was like, let's have a banquet. Let's support that I'm going to be king. Let's sacrifice stuff to God. We're going to sacrifice the sheep and the cattle and the calves. We're going to honor God. See, he was doing the things that looked right for church. But that's not what God wanted. That's, that's not the way. And we've developed this empty religion called Christianity where as long as you come and do this stuff, you'll be good. And God's like, no, I want you. Like, think about success in the eyes of God. In the church, it's how many people can we get? And God's like, if just two or more gather, I'm among you. And if we only had two people in here, even myself, I'd get caught up in, well, church must not be successful. And God's like, success is what you make out of the two or three. You think about that at your dinner table tonight in your homes. Two or more gather, I am there. When you go home, if there's more than one person, God's in the room. Think about that the next time you put your eyes to things and ears to things and what comes out your mouth. Hmm. 
And the thing is, he was doing all this stuff, had a huge banquet, and the people that supported him failed to see the thing that should have made them question, is this God or not? And we find it in the next verse, verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the king's bodyguard or one of his brothers, Solomon. They were so focused on what he was doing that looked great that their eyes were blinded to the thing that showed them that this was totally wrong. I think that's what we do in church. We try to build up everything that's going right that we're turning blind eyes to the injustice of what's wrong. I don't think God is pleased with thousands of people in the church. He's pleased when every single person in those thousands are seeking him. He's, he's only pleased with seeking. And I'm truly getting to a point in my life where I, I could care less. Like, when we knock this wall down, it's doing it for a purpose. We sought God on it. It's not just, ooh, we get to go bigger. There's a lot more going into that. It's, it's not just a bigger facility. There is intention about where we're going. But I'm at a point in my life with, with God where I don't care if the reason knocking that wall down is just so that only us stay and we just have more room to be more free in our expression of worship. I don't care what happens as far as the amount of people. What I care about is investing in your life to see you grow and leap and go into your walk with God. Can you Can I just share some vision? Imagine a day in church where we are so obsessed with seeking God that none of us no longer need an altar call. We're just seeking places to take the altar. Like, even in the culture of this church, think about this. We've got an altar team so that we can get you to come and pray for you. But that's not the goal. It's a process in getting us strong enough to a place where there is no need for an altar, which is just six feet of space between a stage and a chair. You know where the altar is? It's you. What if the altar call is going into every place you walk into that when people see you, all they see is light and they start to ask and then they bow at the feet of Jesus. That's the goal. That is the vision. Go and make disciples, not gatherings. And sometimes including God means including the right people in your decision making. Because notice the people he did not invite was the prophet for David, his bodyguard, and the brother, Solomon. And a lot of times we're scared to let the right people in because the wrong people, it just makes life easier. And God's like, if it's so easy you can do it on your own, you obviously missed the point where I said where you're weak, I'm strong. There's got to come a level in our relationship that it's so tough to walk with God that we actually have to depend on him. Like something like faith. It's easy to talk about, but faith in action is really hard. And you know why we never exercise it? Because we're comfortable living our lives how we are and where we are, and we're never pushed. Because our custom and culture says, what I do is okay. And God's like over here going, 
But what, a, what about me? I told you to renew your mind, not alter it with substance. I told you to run to the Father, not run into the arms of people who will embrace you and then betray you. Verse 11, then Nathan went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and asked her, haven't you heard that Haggith's son, Adonijah, has made himself king, and our Lord David doesn't even know about it? If you want to save your own life and the life of your son Solomon, follow my advice. This is Nathan the prophet. I want to point out something really quick. This is the first time we've seen Nathan in the story since 30-some-odd years ago he rebuked David for sleeping with Bathsheba. And you know what? He's still around. Because sometimes the best people in your life are the ones who will rebuke you. So when someone rebukes you, you know why God says don't get offended? Because there's probably some truth in it. Hmm. This is, Lord, thank you for tonight. If you want to save your own life, the life of your son Solomon, follow my advice, verse 13. Go at once to get to to King David and say to him, my Lord, the King, amen. Didn't you make a vow and say to me, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you're still talking with him, I will come and confirm everything you have said. Nathan knew something about custom and culture. Because if you remember custom and culture in the beginning of this whole series, custom and culture says, David, you need to kill King Saul. Because when you become king, you kill anyone that may threaten your throne. But God told David, don't you touch him. And here, Nathan knew because of custom and culture, Adonijah, who was following in the footsteps of Absalom, was probably not going to say Solomon sit at a table. You know what he was going to do? Kill him to secure his throne. This whole story hinges on customs and culture and forgetting about God. So in verse 15, Bathsheba went into the king's bedroom. He was very old now, and Abishag, that was the young version, was, was taking care of him. Bathsheba bowed down before the king. What can I do for you, he asked her. She replied, my Lord, you made a vow before the Lord your God when you said to me, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and will sit on my throne. But instead, Adonijah has made himself king, and my Lord, the king, does not even know about it. He sacrificed cattle, fattened calves, sheep. He's invited all the king's sons to attend the celebration. He invited Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army. He didn't even invite your servant Solomon. And now, my lord, the king, all Israel is waiting for you to announce who will become king after you. If you don't act, my son Solomon and I will be treated as criminals as soon as my lord, the king, has died. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. The king's officials told him, Nathan the prophet's here to see you. And remember, Nathan hadn't showed up in a while. So if Nathan showed up, David's like, what? What now? <laughs> Y'all ever had those people show up? Like you get that text, that phone call, you okay? Well, you heard. <laughs> what do I not know about? Nathan went in, bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan asked, my lord, the king, have you decided that Adonijah will be the next king and that will, he will sit on your throne? 
I, I, I love how like sarcastic the prophet is. Hey man, you uh, you did this. Verse twenty five. <laughs> I love making it real. <laughs> Today he has sacrificed many cattle, fattened calves, sheep. He has invited the king's son to attend the celebration. He invited the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priests. They were feasting and drinking with him and shouting, "Long live King Adonijah!" But he didn't invite me. He didn't invite Zadok the priest or Benaiah or your son servant Solomon. Solomon. Has my lord the king really done this without letting any of his officials know who should be the next king? We have two people telling David the facts. You got Bathsheba and you got Nathan. And David loved Nathan because he kept him. He didn't throw him away when he rebuked him. And I would just say don't cut relationships because of your decision. Let God decide who stays and let God decide who goes. Well, Bathsheba and Nathan are keeping David accountable to something. There's what, what are Bathsheba and Nathan keeping David accountable to? Not to what they want. What the Lord told David. They said the same thing. Remember, you made a covenant to the Lord that he was going to be king. Are you going to follow through with it or not? Verse 28. King David responded, call Bathsheba. Because at this time, Bathsheba had left. Nathan came in. So she came back in and stood before the king, and the king repeated his vow. As surely as the Lord lives, who has rescued me from every danger, your son Solomon will be the next king. He will sit on my throne this very day, just as I vowed to you before the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at what David said. I didn't know this was going on, but I'm not going to let culture decide. I'm not going to let custom decide. He says, today, I'm taking care of this. My God reigns. His decision reigns. And I, I want to just challenge you. There's some things that God has been speaking to you. And the day to make the change, don't pray about when to make the change. Today is the day to put your throne away and exalt the throne of God in your life. There is no waiting. There is no transition. Today's the day. The issue was settled. God decided, will you come into agreement with it? And David decided. Not culture, not custom, God. Now here's where it gets interesting. Now I'm going to start to close. Then Bathsheba, verse 31, bowed down with her face to the ground before the king and exclaimed, May my Lord King David live forever. Which is funny because he's on his deathbed. Can you imagine David's expression, May you live forever. He's like... And then King David ordered, calls out at the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. Hmm. When they came into the king's presence, the king said to them, take Solomon and my officials down to the Gihon spring, and Solomon is to ride on my own mule. Notice how specific these instructions are. There, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, are to anoint him king over Israel, blow the ram's horn and shout, long live King Solomon. Now, I want to remind you what's going on. Adonijah and all his people having a banquet celebrating that he's king, and while they celebrating the custom and tradition and culture, God's like, let's establish what I say rises. You can be distracted by custom and culture all you want, 
but I'm going to get done when I need to get done. And if I need to get it done with a group of 12, I'll get it done with a group of 12. If I need to get it done with Solomon who was born out of adultery, that's how I will get it done. Stop qualifying what God can use. He can use any one of us. Verse 35. After he says, blow the ram's horn, shout, long live King Solomon, and then escort him back here. He will sit on my throne. He will succeed me as king, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Amen, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, replied. May the, Lord, the God, may, may the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, decree that it happen, and may the Lord be with Solomon as he has been with you, my Lord the king. May he make Solomon's reign even greater than yours. Now, we can move on, but I think there's something significant about what happened here. Did you see how specific the commands were? <coughs> David called some people to establish Solomon. And among them was David, the king, Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet. A king, a priest, and a prophet. Jesus himself was known as the great king, priest, and prophet. David had a plan and executed, executed it to make Solomon the king. A mule, priest, a prophet, blow the ram's horn, say long live the king, have him sit on my throne. And if Jesus was all three, king, priest, and prophet, trust me when I say his plans to establish you are going to be just as specific. So he says, I will direct your steps to walk into the mystery of what I predestined you to be. They're going to be specific. They're going to be do this and don't do this. They're going to be accept this and don't accept that. They're going to be very specific. It's going to be a specific way. And if you get off the path, I'm not going to change my plan, but I will make the path you're walking on work together for the good of the next step you were supposed to take. See, it's not God makes all things work together for good, meaning you can make any decision you want and God make No, he says, I will take you getting off the path and work it for my good. What's my good? That you get back in step. Because it's only in my step that you will rise. I decide who rises. How do I decide who rises? You walk in my step. You walk along me. And I will decide when you rise and how you rise. Let me do it. I'm going to be that specific with you. The fact is, if you allow God to guide you in decision making, it all leads to the one who is exalted on his throne. Exalting you as you take a throne of humility. He wants to establish you. He wants to see you be fruitful. He wants to see you go places, but it's for him. His glory, not yours. His exaltation, not yours. So in verse 38, I'm getting, I'm getting there. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehida, and the king's bodyguard took Solomon down to Gihon Spring with Solomon riding on King David's own mule. 
And there was at it, the priest took the flask of olive oil from the sacred tent, anointed Solomon with the oil. Then they sounded the ram's horn, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes, shouting for joy. And the celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook with the sound. And we have scripture that talks about when he comes, we're going to be hearing a sound that will shake the heavens and the earth. And I found it interesting that he rode in on a mule. Because in ancient Israel, you would think a mule is a bad thing, but it's actually not. This was King David's mule. A mule had to be imported. Because it wasn't of their culture. They had to bring it from somewhere else, and therefore it was expensive to bring in. It was custom and culture to have the king ride in on a mule. Because only common people rode on donkeys. What did Jesus ride into town on? A donkey. You know why? Because with custom and culture, the king rides in on a mule. And God says, I can let Jesus be relevant to the people and their custom and their culture on Palm Sunday by bringing him in on a mule, or I can just do it my way and put him on a common man's donkey. We're so hungry to be culturally relevant and everything that God does is totally opposite of culture because he, the whole point is to get us back to a kingdom culture. The whole point is for heaven to be on earth. And the, we've created a religion that teaches people your life's going to be really bad and one day you'll go home to heaven. And God's like, he's like, I've created your home and you're living on it. So stop hoping to die and start making it like it's supposed to look. How do I do that, God? I've written down every single step. But you're not making right decisions. You don't include me in anything. You look at the custom, you look at the culture, you look at all this other stuff, you look at all these external factors, and you don't seek me with anything, and you wonder why your lives are miserable, you can't make anything of yourself, your money is sinking down in your pockets, you're always hungry, you're always thirsty, and my house, the people of God, are in ruin. And sometimes the Father wants something of custom. I think sometimes the Father wants something of culture. But sometimes, and most oftentimes, he wants something that looks like neither. Well, how do I know when to do something with culture? How do I know when to do something with custom? It's all back to one thing. Seek him. Not all cultural trends are bad. Not all customs are bad. Acknowledging Passover is not a bad thing. Acknowledging the resurrection of Christ is certainly not a bad thing. Taking the sacrament of baptism and communion is not a bad thing. But everything has to be lined up with, is this what God wants? And he has told us what he wants. 
On verse 41, remember they just proclaimed that Solomon was the king and they all eaten, at, you know, at Spanky's. Verse 41, I'm not going to Spanky's tonight. Adonijah and his guests heard the celebrating and shouting just as they were finishing their banquet. And when Joab heard the sound of the ram's horn, he asked, well, who that? What's going on? Why is the city in such an uproar? Can you imagine? It says the city was shaking. That means in their banquet, tables started shaking. They heard sounds, and they're like, what could be more joyous than Adonijah becoming king? Why is the city in uproar? Verse 42. While he was still speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. Come in, Adonijah said to him, for you're a good man. You must have good news. Not at all, Jonathan replied. <laughs> Our Lord King David has just declared Solomon king. The king sent him down to the Gihon Spring. Was that the priest? Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, they protected him by the king's bodyguard. They had him ride on his mule. Zadok and Nathan anointed him at the Gihon Spring as a new king. They just returned. The whole city celebrating. They're rejoicing. That's what all this noise is about. What's more, Solomon is now sitting on the royal throne as king. Like he's on the throne and David's still alive. Succession is not after you leave. Your goal is to relinquish your throne, but raise up people who are worthy of it. And all the royal officials have gone to down, have gone to King David and congratulated him, saying, May your God make Solomon's fame greater than your own. May Solomon's reign be even greater than yours. And then the king bowed his head in worship as he lay in his bed. And he said, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who today has chosen a successor to sit on my throne while I'm alive to see it. And then all of Adonijah's guests jumped up and panicked from the banquet table and they quickly scattered. Talk about loyal people to the campaign. They're like, oh, you ain't the king? See ya. I'm out of here. <laughs> Forget your food. I ain't going to get killed by that guy. Make right decisions on who you build trust with in your relationships. Because you got to find out, are they behind you or are they behind an idea? Because people who are behind you will stick with you. Because remember, this is a low time for Adonijah. But David had his low time too. And the people who are with him now were the same people with him in that cave with just a few men who were scared to death that King Saul was going to kill him. They were there when he, when he slept with Bathsheba. They were there when he was mismanaging the kingdom and rebellion was happening. They were there every single step of the way. Faithful ones stuck with David no matter what. And we are called to be a church that says we're going, behind, we're going to be behind each other in falls and triumphs. And we're going to let God decide where we're going, who's involved, and how it's going to happen. That's the church I want to be. And the last three verses. <laughs> Verse 50. Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, which he should be, because what's the custom and culture? Solomon should have done what? killed him so he rushed to the sacred tent and grabbed onto the horns of the altar yeah now you get to the altar but think about church though you get to the altar because you're scared of death you hear a sermon all about hell so you grab the horns of the altar but when you say Jesus loves you 
you start to question, is it real? Word soon reached Solomon that Adonijah had seized the horns of the altar in fear and that he was pleading. Let King Solomon swear today that he will not kill me. Solomon replied, if he proves himself to be loyal, not a hair on his head will be touched. But if he makes trouble, he's going to die. Last verse. So King Solomon summoned Adonijah, brought him down from the altar. He was grabbing on the, the horns of the altar so much they had to bring him down. He came, and, and he did not present a case to Solomon. He didn't say, Solomon, you know, I thought I was supposed to be king. Like, I, I, I was just trying to do what was right. Now, he did one thing. He bowed respectfully before King Solomon. And he dismissed him, saying, go on home. Solomon gave this man mercy after one thing. He bowed. Mercy and grace is, in fact, available to you. But you've got to start making some decisions and say, am I really bowing to the king? And if you start to relinquish your ways and submit to his decisions and bow to your king in a humble posture, with all the exaltation of your thrones, God says, I will establish you and I will keep you and I will make my face shine upon you. Amen.